firmly believe that culture has a stronghold on many of us that are believers and followers of Jesus. And that because of our modern age technology, uh, many of us simply take the Bible for granted that at any time, like a lot of information, we can at the touch of our fingertips pull up scripture, look at scripture, read scripture, be fed scripture, get the verse of the day, have a devotional on our Bible app with us. And I think if we're not careful that we can be spending, and statistically speaking, most people spend at a minimum three and a half hours on their devices, our phones, this little thing that we hold in our hands. And for many of us, we are living in the information age. We are living in the technology age where uh, at any given moment, we are being bombarded with information and it is becoming increasingly hard to determine what is the truth. And so last week, if you weren't here, I started this message series with what I believe is the foundation for everything. And that is you have to wrestle with what is true. And how do we find truth? And just like Pilate, when he was encountering Jesus, who the Bible says is the way, the truth, and the life, he looked at him, and there was something, I believe, about this man that drew him, which is why I believe a lot of us are in this room. There's something about Jesus, there's something about the Bible that draws us to him, and it's because that the Bible itself says that he's planted eternity in the hearts of men, which means there's something innately built into your DNA by God that knows that we were born for something more, we were created for something more, and that there is something outside of us that draws us to himself. And so we, Pilate looked at him and he asked the question, what is truth? And Jesus, as he always would do, uh, say that, for this reason, I was actually born. And for those who follow me and are on this side of the truth, you'll, you'll know the way. That's a little bit of my paraphrase. But we have to start there with the truth and that there is absolute truth. So that's the foundation we left off with last week. And this week, I want to pick up from there and really establish a foundation that if we know truth is absolute, that we can find it, that we can know truth, where do we find our source of truth? Now, I remember when I was in, in business, and before I was a pastor, I was in business, I worked for two high-tech companies. And uh, one of the companies I worked for at the time had hired a new VP of sales. And he came into our office and he interviewed every single one of our, our salespeople. And he was, uh, he was one of the, he's a big guy from Chicago and boisterous, loud, big, big personality and very intimidating. And I think even part of what he wanted to do is he wanted to intimidate us a little bit and, and wanted to see what are, what are these guys made of? Because some of us were gonna get fired potentially. And so he brought us into this room one by one. And it was so funny as some of my colleagues went into the room and they come out, we're all like, so what happened? What did he say? You know, how did it go and all this? And so it was, it was my, my turn to go into the room and I go into the room and sit down with him. And the first question he asked me, he asked this. He said, what are the two books that you have on your bedside table? And I said, my Bible. And I said, uh, Waking the Dead by John Eldridge, one of my favorite Christian books. And he said, oh, no business books? <laughs> no, no books on productivity or sales or anything like that? I said, no. I said, if I had to choose two books and two books alone, those are the two books I'd want. And if I had one to choose, I could live off the Bible because my Bible says that man cannot live on bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes very, from the very mouth of God. And he looks at me, pushes his chair back a little bit. He looks me dead in the eye like he's sizing me up. And he says, oh yeah. He's like, I, I've read the Bible a couple times. He goes, a lot of good stuff in there. And we moved on with the interview. I, I, I must have done well because I didn't get fired. And, uh, and, but, but what that struck me is how many people view the Bible. Like, yeah, it's a pretty good book. You know, there's some good stories in there. There's some, you know, good, you know, life, uh, you know, counsel in there and advice. But 
But can we really trust the Bible? I mean, isn't it really a myth? It's kind of like a fairy tale. Aren't you gathered here today to kind of just make yourselves feel better, you know, by believing in God and believing the Bible? And as, uh, as we're in this information age, it has become, the Bible has increasingly come under fire. And right now, even our young people who are on TikTok and YouTube and social media, uh, like Instagram, way more than they read the Bible are getting bombarded daily with these ideas that can the Bible really be trusted? Are you basing your life on a lie? And so today, I want to read to you out of a passage of Scripture. I want to start by reading to you out of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In fact, it says this. Many have undertaken. Now, this is the way Luke is starting his gospel, and we're going to unpack this a little bit. He says, many, listen, I want you to listen to this. In fact, would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet for the reading of the word of God? I think there's something very significant to honor the scriptures this morning and honor those who have gone before us. I don't know how many of you have ever read, uh, you know, it's kind of sadistic, but if you've ever read the book of martyrs, uh, I think every Christian should at least attempt to read it. And I say attempt because I can't get through it. I start to read it and, it and it just hits me so hard what people have gone through, how they've sacrificially, literally giving their physical life for this book that we allow to collect dust on our bedside table. And so I think there's something about honoring the word of God and those who have given their life so that we can not only believe in it and trust in it, but base our lives on it. So I want to read this to you. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus. So that, and here it is, this is for all of us, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Put your hand on your heart, if you would. I want to pray for us. Father, we invite you right now. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. We invite you to come, open our hearts, open our eyes, that we might know the truth and the truth may set us free. Father, I pray that you would help us to put away all our preconceived ideas of what we think about the validity and authenticity of the Bible. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring fresh revelation of who you are and your word and that we can trust it in Jesus' name. Help me, Holy Spirit, to communicate your truth today. I'm dependent upon you. Amen. You may be seated. Title of my message is pretty simple. Can the Bible be trusted? Can the Bible be trusted? And for many of us in the church, depending on your religious background, how you got here this morning, maybe those who are watching online in Eureka, for me, my background was Catholicism. And I know for many of you that I've spoken with, that that's your background as well. And so for, for me, I went to parochial school. I grew up in the Catholic church and the Catholic Church, to me, was a religion. And, and that's not a knock on the Catholic faith. I know a lot of uh, really amazing Catholic people um, who are filled with the Spirit and follow Jesus wholeheartedly with their lives. But for me, it was, it was going to church was like a ritual act. It was just something you did. You went to the confession box to, you know, confess your sins and, and hopefully try to relieve some guilt or shame and, and you went in and you recited scripture. Uh, the priest read scripture. We took communion. You'd stand up. You'd sit down. You'd go through, you know, all the exercises and everything. But it was very dry to me. It, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't life-giving to me. It was just, it was something that you did. But again, it was a religion. Now, for others of us, we grew up, maybe you didn't grow up in the church. And, and in some ways, I think that can be an advantage. For others of us, we've grown up in churches just like this, 
And all our lives, we were told by our parents that the Bible can be trusted. And, and, and we've watched our parents base their lives off of it. And we've based our lives off of it. But I think at some point, we actually need to question, can the Bible be trusted? In fact, I, I want to give you throughout this whole message series permission to doubt. Because I think at times we have all, if we're going to be honest with each other, we've, we've doubted, we've wondered. Is the Bible real? Can it be trusted? Is God real? We, we wrestle with these things in our faith. And I don't think the wrestling is necessarily bad in and of itself if it leads you to search out the truth. And so I would encourage you throughout this message series, I, I have an impossible task to try to each week break down in about 40 to 45 minutes uh, a topic that we could talk about for days and weeks and months on end. So this is really the beginning of a discussion, and, and many of these messages are going to be meant to spur on your search for the truth. But I also want to challenge us, because for those of us who have grown up in the church, I think we've, just ta we've taken for granted that we know the Bible is true, and it can be trusted. And I think there's a couple things that we have to be careful with uh, when we take that posture. And the first thing is this, that we can get into this place of what people outside the church, mind you, this is not me, I understand. We are people of faith. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? We, we all, we say that, we quote that, and for a lot of us, that's the posture we take, and I think faith pleases God. In fact, it's impossible to please God without faith, amen? So we need faith, but I also believe that God created us with a brain for a reason, and there's a reason that it's, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your what? Mind. So we love God and we believe in faith, but we can also love him by using our brains, using one of the greatest gifts that God has given each of us. And, and, but people outside of our faith, they don't accept, well, I, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. They say, okay, well, then you don't really know if you can trust the Bible. You don't know how to respond to that question. And let me tell you, I believe that we are living in an age where young people are longing for something that is real, something authentic, something they can trust, something they could base their lives on. And we have to be ready to give them that answer. But people outside of our faith would say that we live with ignorant certainty. Ignorant certainty. What do you mean by that? Well, that means is I just believe it. I believe the Bible's true. I believe it's real. I, I can't really give you many answers for why I believe it other than I just believe. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And they would say, well, that's great for you, but you're not convincing me why I should believe the Bible's true and why it can be trusted. Number two, is we could fall into this place of hopelessness. And what I mean by that is we can get to a place of despair where we could just say, I can't really know. We can't really know if the Bible is real, if it's authentic. I, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. And we have to be careful with that one because that can lead many people, and I believe it has led many people into a state of despair or hopelessness because they're listening to uh, the world and they're listening to critics of the Bible and its validity and authenticity and it's making us question and doubt the authenticity of the word of God and making us wonder, am I basing my life on a fabrication, on a lie of something that is made up and it's not real? And when that happens, it could lead us into a place of hopelessness. And I think there are many people that walked away and are walking away from the faith because they've landed there. And yet I believe that we can have certainty that the Bible is real, it's authentic, it can be trusted, and you can base your life off of it. But I believe we also, as believers, I think for too long, we've just stayed holed up in our churches, in our small groups, and in our houses and our families and say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and the world is looking for an answer for the hopelessness that they have. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And always, listen, always be prepared 
to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I love how Peter finishes this. Peter, mind you, the brash one, the guy that would say whatever's on his mind, doesn't hold back, and he says this, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I think the church needs to have what what, uh, many pastors have called an informed faith, an informed faith. It's yes, I have faith, I believe in my heart that the Bible's real, that God said it, I trust it, that settles it. We can have that kind of faith. But I also believe that we need an informed faith so that we can be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in a lost and dying world that is begging for somebody to show them the truth. That is looking for somebody to show them something that is real, that they can invest their life. Listen, there's a generation of young people, some are in this room right now, that are longing to know, like, I know my parents believe in it, but I need to believe in it. I need to know that this is worth giving my life for. And I believe that we can do that with an informed faith, not just with our hearts, but also with our heads. And so I wanna help us. I'm gonna give us five areas, and hey, today, this is gonna be a little bit teach heavy, but I believe that this is necessary that we need to have an informed faith. And I believe there's five, and there's more, mind you, but I picked five areas that I believe that will help us to not only see and affirm our faith that the Bible can be trusted, but will help prepare you to give an answer for the hope that you have. Are you ready? The first one is this, that we can trust in trusted ancient manuscripts. Now, many people, in fact, um, Ben Erdman, uh, he's a biblical critiquer, guy, scholar, and he went on the John Stewart show, which is a late night show, and John Stewart interviewed him, and this is on late night TV, reaching millions and millions and millions of viewers, and, and this guy, Bart Ehrman, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, where in that book, he tries to question, he does question the validity of the Bible, and he tries to lead people to the conclusion that you cannot trust the Bible. There's too many misquotes. There's too many variants in the Bible, which, if I'm going to be honest with you, Bart Ehrman isn't wrong. In fact, there are over 400,000 variants in the Bible. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor Lance? A variant is when one word is different from another, and it could change potentially. There's there's certain ways. um, Is it a meaningful change or viable change? Because meaningful means means the change of the variant uh, in the translation means that it could actually change the meaning of what this scripture means, which potentially changes our theology because we, we determine our theology based on the inerrancy of scripture. So Bart Ehrman goes on national television on late night TV and declares to the world that you cannot trust the Bible because of these 400,000 variants. In fact, he said there are more variants than there are words, and Bart Ehrman isn't, right, isn't wrong. And if we just stop there, which he did, it can leave us feeling hopeless. Like, oh my gosh, is that true? And if that's true, what are the implications for that of my faith? Have I, have I built my life on something that is wrong or that I cannot trust? But what Bart Ehrman didn't say is how those variants come about. So I want to help us with that. But first, I want to lay a foundation for you because also many scholars will critique the Bible by saying, well, you can't really know the Bible's true because you don't have the original manuscripts. And they're not wrong either. But here's the deal, as we're going to see. We have based our history of the world on ancient manuscripts most of which we do not have the original documents. In other words, somebody wrote the history or recorded the history, and just like we read a moment ago in in Luke, the good doctor, he passed on to Theophilus what he saw, what he was an eyewitness to, and he wrote to him. In fact, most ancient manuscripts, the oldest ones, were written on papyrus. Now, for many of us, we're not familiar with papyrus is. Papyrus is reeds that were found in Egypt, and they would take these reeds, soak them in water, mash them together, and form pages that they would write on. 
The problem is, these were very fragile documents. In fact, uh, most of them wouldn't last over 100 years because they had the consistency of a paper bag that you get from the grocery store. Except for a couple of different places in the world that only had the ability to preserve them. We'll get into that in a little bit. But to start, I want to remind you that there are 66 books of the Bible. In fact, the word Bible uh, literally means books. There are 66 books of the Bible that were written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors in three different languages. And in fact, uh, the Bible itself cross-references, in other words, that out of those 40 authors, many of them would quote other authors or other books of the Bible in their writings. And I thought this was cool. There's over 63,799 cross-references in the Bible. That means somebody writing the Bible is referencing back to another point in time or another author that wrote something about the Bible. Now, this was really cool. Many of you, last week, you know that I used the scripture in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about that we can clearly see and know God through the creation that he's made so that none of us have excuse. Well, that very next day, I woke up to this beautiful sunrise and I posted a picture of it. That very night, we got to see Boris Arialis, Northern Lights. Now, I want to show you a picture of a graph of what these cross-references look like. Would you put it up on the screen? Now, I don't know about you. Now, this is all cross-references in the Bible. This is where one person referenced someplace from the Bible. Now, this is just a graph, mind you, but my first inclination when I saw this graph was, oh my gosh, God has put, this looks almost identical to a picture my son took of the Northern Lights this past Monday night. And I thought, oh, how cool is God that he is true to his word and that he continues to show his faithfulness, not only through the rainbow, and by the way, the church has taken the rainbow back. Just, just want to say it. I don't know how that ever got stolen, but that was God's idea through creation. But this is just a beautiful picture of how God continues to say, hey, my word is true. And it continues through ages and generations and generations. And if you don't believe that, let's go back to these variants because that poses a problem. If there's so many variants in the Bible, which means there's so many words that are different, and, and how, do, how can we trust the Bible and how can we know that these manuscripts, just like the telephone game, over time, one person didn't tell one person this and the next person told this and the next person told that and the next person told that. And by the end of it, we don't have any real validity, authenticity that what they saw back then and what they recorded back then is what we have in our hands now. Well, let me help you with that a little bit by saying that we actually have uh, almost 25,800 ancient manuscripts. Now, that may seem like a lot to some of you or not a lot to some of you, but let me break it down for you. There's 5,800 Greek, the original. This is the New Testament alone, by the way. I'm, I'm focusing on the New Testament, and we'll, we'll talk about the Old Testament here in just a little bit. But I'm focusing on the New Testament because our faith is really built on the New Testament. It is built on the person of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. That he was a real man, he was fully God, fully man, walked on the earth, lived a sinless life, sacrificially went to the cross, died a, a brutal death, took on your sin and my sin, was buried, and on the third day rose again back into life. And because he lives, you and I can live our whole faith. Paul even said it, if it's not for the resurrection, then this is, we are fools. This is this means, this is meaningless. It means absolutely nothing. And so I want to focus in on the New Testament. The New Testament alone, there is 5,800 Greek manuscripts, okay, which was the language back in the day that they transcribed things in Jesus' time. There's 10,000 manuscripts that were written in Latin alone as Latin became the more popular language after Greek. There's over another 10,000 manuscripts written in other languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Coptic, Georgian, Syriac, uh, and other languages for a total of roughly 25,800 manu ancient manuscripts. On top of that, 
There are fathers of the faith, these are pastors like myself, bishops of the priests of the day, that over time, in fact, in Germany, there is a place where they record every quote from every priest or pastor throughout history that have quoted the Bible. Do you know how many of them we have? Over one million. Over one million quotes from the fathers of our faith. Like St. Ignatius in AD 107, he quotes the New Testament. We have one million of those. Now, I want to give you a little bit perspective, okay? Because for some of us, that may mean, okay, what does that mean? You know, what, what does that mean? Well, other historians that we have based our belief of history about, other historians have that we've accepted, and the world, by the way, has accepted as true, such as Livy, uh, Theocides, Tacitus, Ciotus, uh, Suetonius, sorry, Plato, they all, if you total them all up, there are less than 400 ancient manuscripts. Now, let me, let me put that in perspective too. 400 manuscripts. If we stack them all up here on this platform, they may come up to the pulpit. Maybe. Might be a little short. Might make it up to the pulpit. If you took all the ancient manuscripts of the Bible and stacked them up, can you guess how many we'd have? They would be over a mile long. To put it in perspective, that would be four and a half Empire State Buildings. Four and a half Empire State Buildings. Now, why is nobody questioning what happened in Greece and what happened in Rome? Our history books that scholars believe that teachers teach, they don't question the validity of the history that we have of ancient Greece and Rome, and yet there are less than 400 ancient manuscripts, and we have over 25,800 ancient manuscripts about the Bible, yet it is under scrutiny. And yet people would say, oh my goodness, there are so many variants, how can you know? But let me tell you something, the more manuscripts you have, the more probability that there are going to be differences. So let's talk about that now for a minute. How many variants are really there in the Bible? Well, when scholars looked at the variants, this is what they concluded. Now, mind you, Christians, Christian scholars have given their life's work. In fact, there is more scrutiny over the actual word of God and the ancient manuscripts from Christians, believers, than there are from people outside of the faith. Why? Because we understand the importance of the authenticity of the Bible. There are, there are men that gather around tables, very smart, much smarter than me, much smarter than some of you, that gather around a table every year and they go through every jot and every tittle, every word, and they scrutinize it. But why the, so many variants, Pastor Lenz? Can we really trust the Bible, like Bart, Bart Ehrman said on national television? If for every word there's two and a half variables or variants? So let me, let me talk about that for a second. Because for every variant they went through in the New Testament, this is what they found. 70% of all the variants were simply spelling errors. Now through the ages, people were not as well educated and there were simple words like, for example, the way that John is spelled. John could be spelled J-O-H-N, it could be spelled J-O-N, it could be spelled J-O-N-N. And there's many different ways. Honor could be spelled H-O-N-O-R or H-O-N-O-U-R. And depending on how somebody spelt it, that is considered a variant. Well, 70% of all the variants were simply spelling errors. So you take 70% out of the equation there. Now, the other, uh, other percentage they went through, and they found now, when you look at variants, you have to question two things. Again, is it a meaningful change? Is it, does it change the meaning of the scripture? And is it viable? Is it, is it, can we know that it's true from the change? Or does it change the truth of the scripture? Now, they went through the rest of the variants, and this is what they found. They found that most changes, because in the Greek language, you could say Jesus loves Paul, or you could say Paul loves Jesus, or loves Jesus Paul, or 
and the Jesus loves Paul. And you could say the same thing many different ways because in the Greek language, uh, there, unlike our language, it, it isn't the order in which you say it, it's the end meaning of which is said. And so therefore, there can be changes or differences in the way uh, a verse was written, but it doesn't change in a meaningful way the outcome of the meaning of that verse. When they went through all those different variants, you know what the conclusion they came to? 99% were not really variants at all. In other words, 99% of all the variants that Bart Ehrman went on and tried to make people question their faith and, and, and said that you cannot put your trust in this document because there are over 400,000 variants and made people doubt. But what he didn't say was the truth that 99 point something percent of those variants do not change the meaning one iota. Which means, in fact, he had to, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, listen to this. In the appendix, he had to put something into the appendix about a, a notation noting that you can actually uh, trust the Bible. Okay, I want to read this to you. This is his quote in the appendix of his own book, Misquoting Jesus. He wrote, Essential Christian belief are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In the back of the book, in the paperback edition, in the appendix, he puts this. Meaning that this, these variants do not take away from the validity and the authenticity of the Bible and that it does not impact your faith in what you believe and you should trust in it. Selah. Now that's just, that's just ancient manuscripts. But we have other ways that we can trust the Bible. And, and I want to show you a couple of those too. If you guys can put that up. Um, I love, there's extra biblical historical accounts. Now I want to just read to you uh, a couple of, there, there are men, just like we talked about, that we base history on and history textbooks on. And we believe that history was written by these ancient writers and these real men that lived. And nobody seems to question that. But outside of the Bible itself, there are extra biblical historical accounts. And, and I want to I tell you about some of those men. One of them was Thallus. He lived in 52 AD. In other words, 52 years after the death of Jesus. And he's perhaps one of the earliest secular writers to mention Jesus in, in his ancient writings. Uh, I want to read to you a quote because uh, he actually talks about the day that Jesus was crucified. And through extra biblical accounts of history, he confirms what the Bible says about Jesus' crucifixion, about what was happening at the time. I want to read you a direct quote. It says this, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. The darkness, Dallas, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Now, this is an account, and it backs up the Bible. It's not the Bible, but it is extra-biblical accounts. In other words, other historians actually back up the history of the Bible so that we can trust in it. And so I think that's important for us to look at. Another one that is, a third one is this is the recorded eyewitnesses of the accounts of the gospel. The recorded eyewitnesses of the accounts of the gospel. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the gospel, the gospel is four books that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are eyewitnesses accounts of those four men of the life of Jesus. And so now, I just wanna say, I did my, a little bit of research on this myself. Do you know that uh, in a court of law, it only takes one eyewitness and their testimony in court to prosecute someone? One eyewitness. We have four firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and times that recorded the life of Jesus in the four gospels. Now this is significant 
Because this is, and, and somebody, somebody might say, oh yeah, but there are variants in the Gospels. In other words, there's differences in, you know, Matthew says this, Mark says that. Well, if you're here in the service today and you leave and a day later, somebody interviews you and asks you, hey, what did you see in the service? You might see one thing from your perspective and somebody might see another thing. It is their first-hand account of the testimony of what they saw and witnessed in the life and times of Jesus Christ. And there are four of them. It only takes one. If one of you murdered somebody, and I hope you don't do that, um, but if, if you did and you went on trial for it and there was one witness, there's a good chance that you're going to get prosecuted for that murder based on the eyewitness account of the testimony of that one person, and we have four of them. Now, some people question, you know, oh, did, did they just make it up? Is this a fabricated story? These four guys, you know, did they somehow get together and did they make up these stories? Well, I would ask you this. What's their motivation? When somebody is on the stand, a good lawyer will try to pick apart their testimony, and the number one way that they do it is they determine if they have motivation. In other words, is there something in it for their testimony to be skewed? In other words, is there, is there a reason for them to make up the story? Well, let me ask you this. What was the motivation for the disciples or the four gospel writers to fabricate a story that would lead them to be ostracized from their family, from their friends, from their own faith, their own churches, cast them out of the synagogues? They would be beaten they would be persecuted, and eventually they would die a brutal death, just like the one that they gave their lives to follow. Now, why in the world would anybody that is making up a story do that? In fact, it's interesting, Chuck Colson, who, uh, who has a great book on his journey of faith, but he was, uh, he was a, a politician in the Republican Party, and their whole, if you remember in history of the United States, when the Watergate scandal went down, Chuck Colson was a part of the cover-up. And there was about seven or eight guys. He actually thought he was going to get out of it because there was about seven or eight guys that said, hey, I got your back. When I go on the stand, I got you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them what, what, whatever we need to tell them to fabricate the story to keep you out of jail. Well, when each of them got into that place and they knew that they're, if they got caught perjury and lying that they could go to jail for life, all of them told the truth. Why? Because they didn't want to lose their life. In fact, most, um, most lawyers that are criminal lawyers, they understand that there are three main motivations for anybody making up a story and not telling the truth. The first one is lust or sex. The second one is greed or money. The third one is power or control. No of those, none of those motivations exist in any of the four gospel writers. So why would they make this up? Especially when other historians back up their writings. I want to remind you, Luke chapter 1, what Luke said about his own account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom they were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything. Now, Luke was a doctor. This guy, he, he was used to, you had to be precise. You can't make mistakes here. I carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you and I, right here, right now, may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now I want to remind you of John. John chapter 21, verse 24. John is closing out his gospel. Listen to what John writes. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who, were writ who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And I love this. This is how he ends the book of John, the gospel of John. And Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that could be written. But it doesn't end there. Fulfilled prophecy. Do you know that the Bible has over 1,800 prophecies Prophecies speak to the future, future events that would happen. There is over 1,800 prophecies in the Bible, of which almost only four, about 500 haven't been fulfilled yet. 
because they speak of the future and revelation and, and end times. Most of them have already been fulfilled. The number, listen, the number of messianic prophecies that have been fulfilled. This is prophecies about the person of Jesus uh, or related to Jesus is over 300. Okay, that might not seem like a lot to you guys. And you might be like, okay, so what's the point? Well, here's the point. Do you know how many prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus? Do you know what the probability? What are the odds that even one of those? In fact, I, I want to read to you um, eight of those prophecies real quick. And I want to show you something very significant. Eight of those prophecies, just eight. There's over 300. He was born in an obscure little town of Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, and the family of, the David, of David, Isaiah 11.1. 1. He would be a messenger who would prepare the way for him. Speaking of John the Baptist in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3.1. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22.16. His executioners divided up his garments and cast lots for them, Psalm 22.18. He was given vinegar to drink by his persecutors, Psalm 69.21. None of his bones were broken. This fulfills the statement about the Messiah in Psalm 34:20, as well as the prophetic type of a Passover lamb, whose bones were not, were not to be broken in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Last one, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He was pierced through. Those are only eight. There's over 300. And you heard the detail even in those eight. Do you know what the odds are? One person fulfilling eight prophecies is one and I can't even say the word. I, I don't even know how to say that. Because it's not even a billion, it's more. <laughs> and one chance in 10 is the 157th power, one person fulfilling 300 prophecies, only the person of Jesus. Yeah, wow. You should be saying, well, R.C. Sproul would say this, the very dimension of the sheer fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament scriptures should be enough to convince anyone that we are dealing with a supernatural power of literature, piece of literature. See, this book is supernatural. It's not just natural. And the world and culture is trying to rob you of its belief in its supernatural power. But yet we can believe it. The last one in a is with this, archaeology. Now, my wife and I had the privilege to, um, to go to Israel uh, this year, this past year in January, and, and I had no idea what I was in for. I mean, I knew I was going to see some historical sites and everything, but there is something about when you are standing there in a bona fide archaeological excavation site where people not of the faith mind you, have deemed that this was a very real place. And you read about that place in the Bible. It just blew my mind. And I got to a place where I, I just like, man, how can anybody not believe the Bible is true? And then I went to this place called the Dead Sea Scroll, or I'm sorry, Qumran, where they found probably the greatest archaeological. Now, I could, I could list off several archaeological places in the world where they've discovered and backed up the Bible. There's places like where the ark landed, where Noah's ark landed. There is uh, the walls of Jericho. In fact, there's been debate about that because the walls fell inward. And see, people of the world will try to explain away like how, how this happened. Like people couldn't, they, they actually said that. They said, this obviously isn't the site because armies could not have brought down the wall like this. Well, duh, <laughs> they didn't bring down the wall. If you actually read the Bible, they marched around the wall and God sovereignly caused them. They, in fact, they said this, it seems like this happened more by an earthquake. Really? You guys are brilliant. Like God couldn't cause an earthquake for the walls to come down. Come on. They found places like where they think Sodom and Gomorrah was and even found pottery that had been seared because of the immense heat, heat that would happen uh, when they test, like when they tested the A-bomb in the desert. 
that would actually melt sand and cause it to turn to glass and pottery to become sheer. And they were dumbfounded by that for many years, wondering this can't be this ancient because they didn't put sheer on pottery like that until they realized it was from immense heat. Things like that. But probably the greatest one, when I was standing there at Qumran, and I was looking behind me, if you could put up those, those screenshots, those pictures. This is a picture of, of me standing, my wife standing there. That's the, that's the Dead Sea in the background, right there. And if you could put up the other shot. The other shot is, is me facing the other way of looking at these hills with caves. And you can see one of them right there. And there's many different caves, but there's a, a great example of one of those caves right there. So around 1946, I believe, there was these Bedouin sheep herders. And, and there was this young man who, I don't know, maybe he just liked to throw rocks, see if he could make it into these caves. And he was throwing rocks in a cave and all of a sudden I hear this glass or something, what sound like glass or pottery break, which piqued their interest. Well, they climb up into, into one of these caves and they, they find uh, that there was these jars, many jars, and in them, within them, they find papyrus. And remember, I already told you, papyrus lasted oh, maybe a hundred years. It was so fragile, but there's only very, very few places in the world that can actually preserve a document written on papyrus. And it just so happens that Dead Sea is about a hundred miles below sea level in the desert, arid, dry place. And it is one of the only places in the world that these documents could actually be preserved. Now this little sheep herder, he gets this document. They don't know what to do with it. They're not even sure what it is. They send it, they send it to England um, or actually to the, to the US. And there's a professor, William Foxwell Albright of John Hopkins University. He, he studies this little piece. It's about the size of a credit card. In fact, you have a picture of it, Papyrus 52. It's P52, it's labeled P52. If you could put that picture up first of P52, it's this little credit card size piece of scripture. And it was written in codex, which means it's not like a scroll, it's written on both sides, okay? And they sent it to John Hopkins University and what, what John Albright, if you could put that quote back up, what he said after looking at it, he said this, my heartiest congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. I put in parentheses, my, Pastor Lance, the goat. The date is no later than the ascension of Herod the Great. I would prefer 100 BC. Now, before that, most scholars believe that the earliest manuscript that we had was 900 AD. Now, I'm not good at math, but if you track in with me, that's about a thousand years earlier that they found and, and they were dating this manuscript. Most people were trying to discredit the Old Testament because they said, we don't have enough uh, ancient manuscripts that actually are close enough to the date to make this valid. So before discovery of 900 AD was the oldest copy. Now, listen, they found in the very first document, Isaiah 53. They went through Isaiah 53 and found that there were 17 letters that were different. 10 of them were different in spelling. Four more were very minor in such a, uh, the presence of a con, uh, conjunction and three letters in the Hebrew for the word light, with the same meaning. Out of 166 words, there's only one word in question and it has no meaningful change. What's your point, Pastor? My point is this, that what you hold in your hand can and should be trusted. It's something that you can build your life on. Not just by my word, not because God said it, I believe it, that settles it, but because we can know because of the overwhelming evidence that the Bible is real and it can be trusted. Now all that's good, but what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me here today? I can tell you this, and I know uh, I'll be done in just a few moments. But what it means, and probably the greatest affirmation that the Bible is true, 
is that here standing before you is a young man who was lost, confused, just graduated high school. I tried to read the Bible because I thought I should. And I really wanted to, I, I wanted to read the Bible, but I, every time I read it, it was lifeless to me. I didn't get it and I didn't understand it. It was confusing. And so I gave up on it until there was a service just like this that I was sitting in. And the Holy Spirit drew my heart to the heart of God. And I came up to the altar on that day, surrendered my life to Jesus. And he breathed. He forgave me of all my sin because Jesus paid the price for it. I just had to believe it. And, and he breathed on me the breath of life, the same breath of life that he breathed. The Bible says that all scripture is God breathed, inspired by the very life of God. There's life in it. It's alive. It's active. It has the ability to do surgery on my heart. And, and God breathed on me that day. My heart came alive. That night, I stayed up to two in the morning, sitting in the bathroom on top of the toilet. Confucius say, man on top of toilet, high on pot. I wasn't, I wasn't high on pot. I was high on the very word of God. All of a sudden, it came alive to me. I, I not only understood it, all of a sudden life started to make sense to me because the Bible was real. It changed my life. And I wanna ask you a question and probably the greatest testimony that the Bible is real is a life that's changed. If the Bible's changed your life. Would you stand? Only stand if the Bible's changed your life. Now maybe you're here today and you don't believe in this and you're just like, hey, I'm just checking this out. I'm not really sure if I believe. I wanna to read to you in closing, that little piece of first of that scroll that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was Isaiah 53. I wanna close by reading you a portion of it. And I, want you to, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. I want you to listen to this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Revelation. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from people hide their faces, he was despised and we helped him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Jesus and we You can build your life on the authority of the word of God. You can and should be trusted.